scripture reading is taken from Romans 11, verses 1 to 12. Romans 11, verse 1. I ask, then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appears to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your authors, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Bill. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Verse 7, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failures means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? This is God's word. Happy, thanks for reading God's Word. Uh, let's go to God and pray again as we prepare our hearts. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank You for Your Word. Uh, we thank You for revealing truth to us. We pray that You would help us as we come to Your Word. Grant us understanding. And Father, move our hearts to worship You, to love You, and to trust You. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in the course of Claire's work, she recently had the opportunity to meet uh, this man called Anil David, uh, you may have heard of him, he's been featured in some newspaper articles as well. Uh, some years ago, Anil was sent to prison, forcing him to leave behind his wife and two young daughters. You know, his life of crime had tore his family apart. You know, but while in jail, you know, Anil uh, resolved to make amends for the hurt he had caused. You know, while, while he was in prison, he, he thought, okay, I want to do something uh, to, to turn things around, to make my daughters proud. So while he was in prison, Anil had the opportunity to work in a call center while serving out his sentence. You know, he worked hard and was then promoted to manager. Uh, but the real challenge for Anil came when he had to leave the prison, ironically. Uh, when he was released from prison, he found it really hard to find a job. You know, as an ex-convict, you know, it was difficult for him to reintegrate into society. You know, but Anil didn't give up. He continued to work at it, and he decided, he came on, upon this idea to set up a, a call center of his own, hoping that he could also give opportunities to other ex-offenders and the less privileged in society. You know, I, I listened to an interview that Anil did with uh, some media outlets, and Anil calls himself uh, unbankable. <laughs> unbankable. You know, because of his criminal record. You know, he said it was tough getting his business off the ground because no banks would lend money to him, an ex-convict. Uh, but Anil persevered, and he received help from several private investors who believed in him, you know, who thought that he had a good idea and he could make an impact in society. So his persistence paid off, and Anil set up this call center called uh, Agape Connecting People, a social enterprise whose goal is to provide call center jobs for the disadvantaged to help them rebuild their lives. You know, uh, since then, since it was set up some years ago, Agape has employed around 100 people, you know, most of whom are ex-convicts. You know, Anil's life has turned around in quite a remarkable way. And, and, and not only so, you know, his life is now impacting other people's lives as well, as, as other people are thinking about how to turn their own lives around. 
Now, I tell Anil's story because it inspires hope in us. I think this is why many of us like turnaround stories, right? You know, we like hearing about dramatic reversals in the lives of others because hearing their stories encourages us to keep pressing on through the tough times that we may be facing. You know, I, I trust that some of us here may be hoping for a similar turnaround, some kind of reversal in your life, something that will really turn your life around. And as we get to Romans 11, you know, we find that Israel too is in need of a turnaround. You know, as Ian mentioned in his sermon last week, uh, Romans 10 kind of ends with a cliffhanger, right? God says of Israel, all day long, this end of Romans 10, all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. God stands with hands ready to receive Israel, but they don't come. Israel has not obeyed the gospel and they have stubbornly refused to turn to Jesus, their promised Messiah. So so Romans 10 kind of ends with this cliffhanger question, right? Has the door of salvation finally closed for Israel? Now, is it game over for them? And the screen kind of fades to black. <laughs> then here we start the, a new season. So thank you for coming back for the second season. <laughs> Romans 11 begins with this same question, right? Has God rejected His people? You know, verse 1, Romans 11. And if you recall, this key question in Romans 11, you know, has God rejected His people? This is related to the bigger issue that Paul is dealing with in Romans 9 to 11, which is this. Why haven't more Jews believed the gospel? Right? This is their Messiah. You know, this, they, they are the recipients of all these promises. Why haven't they believed the gospel? Has God's promises failed? For Israel, has, has God failed to keep His word to save His people? Now, now why, does, why does all this matter to us? Do these questions about Jewish salvation, why does it matter to us? I, I trust that most of us here are non-Jews, right? I think most of us here, if not all, are Gentiles. I, I won't ask the Jews to put up their hands. <laughs> uh, so why does this matter to us? I think it, it matters because God's faithfulness is at stake. You know, if, if God's word to Israel, His people has failed, then how can we be sure that He will keep His promises to save us? It matters because God will show His glory by saving both Jews and Gentiles. God's purposes for Israel and the nations are intertwined. You know, we, we can't think of Jewish salvation without also thinking about Gentile salvation and vice versa, as we'll see from Romans 11. You know, God's big plan of salvation displays the glory of His sovereignty, the glory of His wisdom, the glory of His grace. And, and, and Paul writes Romans 11 for Jews as well as for Gentiles because his purpose is to want, he, he wants us to see and to savor the glory of God. You know, we, we can't walk away from Romans 11 going, ah, sounds good, it's pretty interesting stuff. No, no, look at how Romans 11 ends. You know, it, it ends with a, a, a wonderful doxology at the end, right? All, all this theology about God's plan, about the salvation of the Jews, about the salvation of the Gentiles, all this theology leads to doxology. And, and Paul is showing us this is how we should be responding to God's truth. We we can't read God's truth in an indifferent, detached, disinterested way, but but rather as we see the the wonders of God's plan, it it moves us to worship Him, to praise Him. I think that's where this chapter is headed. And God will keep His promises to save And human sinfulness cannot thwart His purposes. God is sovereign and He is able to work a great and gracious reversal for our good and His glory. So so as we come to this text, let's let's come with hearts open to, to worship God, to trust Him as we see 
his purposes for his people. I thought it was because of the beans I had for breakfast. So we start with verse 1 in Romans 11. You know, has God rejected Israel? And Paul says you know, very clearly in verse 1, you know, by no means, you know, of, of course not. And, and how do we know this? You know, Paul says, I myself am an Israelite. So not all Jews have rejected the gospel. You know, some have believed in Jesus, and Paul himself is one such example. And his Jewish heritage is beyond question. He goes on to say that he is an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, and a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So, so Paul says the gospel is still at work among the Jews. And Paul is proof that God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Right, verse 2. Now, the word foreknew is an interesting word. When, we say, when, the, when the Bible uses the word foreknew, it means more than simply to know about something beforehand. Right? Otherwise, Paul would simply be saying that God knows about Israel beforehand, you know, which doesn't sound very impressive. Now, rather, when we, come to, when we see the word know in the Bible, the, the word know is often used to mean to know someone intimately, uh, to know someone inside out, right? very closely, to know. So, so to know someone in this sense means to love the person. That's, what, that's how the Bible uses the word know. For, for example, in Genesis, Adam knew Eve and they conceived. And she had a son, right? Adam knew Eve in that way. So when Paul says God foreknew Israel, what is he saying? He means that God loved Israel even before the nation existed. You, know, you have to go all the way back to, to the way God dealt with Abraham, right? the father of the Jewish nation. Even before Abraham started to seek God, even before he knew of God, God called him. Right? God, God set his love on Abraham ahead of time. And indeed, Moses says this of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 7. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And interestingly enough, God gives them the reason. Or God tells them this is not the reason. He says, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. You know, God didn't choose Israel because they were so impressive. You know, in fact, they were the least among the nations. But then Moses says, it is because the Lord loves you. Interesting, right? Why did God choose to love Israel? Because he loves Israel. I mean, it's a bit of a non-reason, but I think God is showing that he is the one who set his love on his people. And nothing can change that. Nothing can change his purpose, his commitment to love his people. You, can, you, can be, you, begin, you begin to see why this matters for us as well. Because if God sets his love on Israel and nothing can change God's purposes, the same holds for us too. If God has set his love on us, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus not, if, not even human failure and sinfulness. You know, in the Old Testament, the prophet Elijah also wrestled with this question about whether God had completely rejected Israel. You know, Israel, uh, Elijah lived in a time when Israel had forsaken God and had turned to worship idols. And, and Elijah thinks that he is the only faithful Israelite. You know, I alone am left. You, know, you read about it in 1 Kings 18-19. You know, like Elijah, we too can get discouraged as we think about God's purposes. You know, when we seek to be faithful in the world, we can sometimes feel quite alone. Whether it's in our family, 
at our workplaces or at our schools. You know, we, we can feel I alone am left. You know, there's, there's no other Christian witness here. You know, it's heartening to know that the characters of the Bible were also ordinary men and women like us who struggled with very similar struggles. You know, Elijah wrestled with doubt. You know, Elijah wrestled with depression. You know, he, he retrie- he, what did he do? If you read 1 Kings, he fled into the wilderness, right? And then he even asked God to take away his life because he just couldn't bear the pain anymore. And that's why he said, you know, I alone am left. Now, we too can lose hope when we lose sight of who God is, when we lose sight of what God is doing. Now, this is one of the causes of burnout in ministry. Now, we burn out, not, not just because we are physically tired, although, although we are, but we burn out because we're also spiritually spent. And, and we're spiritually spent because we feel as though our efforts to serve God are futile, are fruitless. You know, it could be we, we may be trying to share the gospel with someone, uh, a close friend, a close relative who've been trying that for long, for many, many years, and seemingly there are no results. You know, we, we may be seeking to win back a, a wayward child trying to share the gospel with a parent who is in ill health. And we may be seeking to bear the burden of someone who is in sorrow or suffering. You know, that, that, that weight and, and burden of serving and doing ministry in that way is tiring. And, and sometimes we struggle with being burnt out because we feel as though our efforts are fruitless. They don't produce the, the fruit that we so badly Desire. We, we don't see the results in that person's life. Now, Elijah struggled with that. And, and perhaps Paul, even Paul struggled with that as well. So as, as Paul writes these verses, I wonder if Paul is also preaching to himself as he wrestles with the grief of why not more Jews are followers of Jesus. So this is a, a message for us as well. Even as we struggle with the lack of results, as we serve God. So where can we turn to for encouragement? You know, this passage tells us that we, we don't look to ourselves, and neither do we look at our circumstances or our situation. But we look to God himself. You know, what does God say to Elijah? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. You know, Elijah thought he was alone, but he wasn't. You know, that, that little example of Elijah tells us that oftentimes our perceptions of reality don't always match reality. Now, what we see with our earthly eyes is not always what is real. Right? There, there's a deeper spiritual reality to what we see that sometimes we are not privy to, or sometimes we are, we are just unaware of. Or sometimes in our unbelief, we, we fail to see. You know, God wants us to look at our circumstances, not, not as just mere circumstances, but God wants us to look at our situation with the eyes of faith and, and to really see what He is doing. Just because we don't see fruit, you know, as, as we define it, doesn't mean that God isn't working. You know, so God, God assured Elijah that He would save a remnant of Israel. And in the same way, Paul says, even now, that there will be a remnant of Jews who believe in Jesus. You know, and this, this is how God encouraged Paul in Corinth as well. You remember Acts 18? When Paul is somewhat discouraged in Corinth, right? You know, he's preached in that great global city, Corinth. You know, it's like us showing up in New York City and saying, you know, I'm here to declare the gospel and people kind of look at you strange, right? So that's what happened to Paul in, in Corinth, right? You know, this Jewish preacher, this nobody trying to make, a, you know, trying to make Jesus known, and people were just kind of ignoring him. Well, a lot of people were ignoring him. And, and, Paul, and, and God comes to Paul in, in Paul's discouragement. And what does God tell Paul? Do not be afraid, but go on speaking 
and do not be silent, for I am with you. And then God says to Paul, I have many in this city who are my people. So friends, are you discouraged trying to share the gospel maybe in your homes, in, in your workplaces? No, you feel as though no one's listening <laughs> and people are kind of starting to look at you funny. You know, God comes to you and says, do not be afraid. You know, go on speaking for God has a people. Right? God has a people. Go on speaking. Now, this is the kind of confidence in God that helped pioneer missionary William Carey to persevere through many seemingly barren years in India. Now, Carey is known as one of the founders of modern Protestant missions. In 1792, Carey organized a missionary society in, in England among several, Baptist among several Baptist churches. And within a year, he sailed for India. And while he was in India, Carey endured unimaginable hardship. I mean, if you, if you read Carey's biography, it's, it's just a, you know, a, a litany of woes. You know, he had a really tough life. You know, when he arrived in India, shortly after he arrived, his five-year-old son contracted disease and died. His wife, who went with him to India, had severe mental illness, and, and she also died. And, and Carey labored for seven years, seven years before he baptized his first convert. Can you imagine? Seven years. You know, you know nowadays you probably get a lot of uh, emails from your missionary agency saying, maybe you should come back. <laughs> maybe it's time to give up. <laughs> maybe you should just do something else. You know, seven years before his first convert. But what kept Carey going was not his circumstances, obviously, it was not his trust in his own abilities, but what kept Kerry going what was this profound trust in the power of the sovereign God who was strong to save. I mean, Kerry understood that if God has a people, he will save his people. And this kept Kerry going you know, all, all through those years. And he spent, in total, 41 years in India. And, and Kerry is credited for translating the entire Bible into India's major languages. Not just one major language, but at least six major Indian languages. And parts of the Bible into 209 other languages and dialects used in India. I mean, this was the fruit of Kerry's ministry and because he believed that God has a people. You know, Kerry famously said in a sermon that he preached at the founding of the Missionary Society in 1792. He said, expect great things from God, attempt great things from God. Friends, is this the way we look at our lives? Are we expecting great things from God? Are we convinced that this God that we worship is strong and able to save? Are we convinced that this God has a people and that He calls us to make him known, because this, this is how he will call a people to himself. And do we expect much of God because we trust him? And do we then go forth and attempt great things from God because we trust that he is able to do great things through his people and for his people? So God has kept a people for himself from every people, nation, tribe, and language. So friends, don't lose heart, but, but go on. You know, keep speaking of Jesus. Keep making him known. You know, keep calm and carry on. Even when it seems fruitless. You know, God is calling us to be faithful and patient as we learn to depend on him. And, and friends, we, we might not reap the harvest in our lifetimes. Right? I, I think that we need a longer, a longer view of, we need a longer time horizon. The, the harvest for Carrie's efforts was probably not reaped in his lifetime, but after that. You know, so it is with us as well. We sow the seed of the word. The harvest might not come in our lifetime, but we trust God. You know, we know that he's able to, work, able to work, and we just wait on him. You know, Paul is assured that there will be a remnant of Israel because they are chosen by grace. Verse 5. 
So God has elected them to be saved simply because of His grace, not because they've done anything to merit that salvation. You know, some say God elects people because He foresees their faith and good works. But, but I don't think this squares or fits with what Paul is saying in verse 6. You know, think about it. If, if God saved me because of something He saw in me ahead of time, then an Am I actually saved by grace? This would make God's choice depend on me, my actions. Then my salvation would not be God's initiative, but merely His response to my initiative. What does Paul say in verse 6? God chooses according to His grace, not on the basis of works. You know, our salvation is either all of grace or it is not of grace at all. You know, this is why the gospel is good news, friends. You know, it's not, it's not what we have done to save ourselves that have endeared us to God, but rather He unilaterally shows us grace entirely of His own gracious initiative. You know, God came, Jesus came to save undeserving unworthy sinners. You know, all of us have turned away from God. Instead of living for Him, we've selfishly lived for ourselves, every one of us. And, and God is just and, and God is right to hold us accountable for our sins. But, but God, in His grace, sent His Son, Jesus, to die on the cross in our place, taking on Himself the judgment that should have been ours. It was entirely gracious. And Jesus died for us so that we can be forgiven by a holy and righteous God. And Jesus rose from the dead to give us new life. And we can be right with God by believing in Jesus alone. Not, not because of anything in us, not because of anything that we have done to contribute, to earn God's grace, but rather we come and trust in Him alone. You know, as we've heard from Romans 10, Israel failed to obtain the righteousness it was seeking because they tried to get right with God through their own efforts. The Jews who refused to trust in Christ were hardened, Paul says here in verse 11. You know, so if, if, we, if we are to come to Christ, you know, we don't just lay aside our unrighteousness and turn to Him, but as we come to Christ, Christ also wants us to lay aside our self-righteousness, our dependence on ourselves to try to earn our right to come to God. Coming to Jesus means repenting, you know, repenting of our unrighteousness and repenting of our self-righteousness, turning away from pride and self-sufficiency so that we lean completely on Jesus alone. We trust that He, yes, He is enough to save us. He really is enough. Now we come to Christ empty-handed, actually bringing nothing but our guilt and our sins before Him. Now I love that line in the hymn, Rock of Ages. You know, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Friends, cling to the cross. Just cling to the cross. So that's God's gracious work of reversal for Israel. But there's more. Right? God goes, Paul goes on to say in, in verses 11 and 12 that there's even more. There's God's gracious reversal for the world. You know, in, in trying to work for their righteousness, Israel stumbled over Christ. But did they fall beyond recovery? You know, Paul replies, by no means, right? Verse 11, Israel's rejection of the gospel isn't the last word in the story. Rather, it is just the first step in the unfolding of God's big plan to save the nations and peoples of the world. You know, in, in, in verses 11 and 15, Paul is doing something remarkable. He, he's pulling back the curtain giving us a glimpse of God's amazing plan for the whole world. Now, and this plan has three parts. 
Right, part one, through Israel's sin, the gospel has gone out to the Gentiles. Acts 13 is an example of this taking place. You know, Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas come to Antioch in Pisidia, and they did what they typically do in a new place, right? When they go around preaching the gospel, the first thing they do is to show up at the Jewish synagogue and, and preach the gospel there. So they do that at the synagogue in Antioch. And then when, when the Jews refused to listen, Paul said this to them, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. Right, so the gospel is for the Jew first and then also for the Gentiles. The, the Jews rejected it. The message now goes out to the Gentiles. And then when the Gentiles heard this, what did they do? They began rejoicing. They began glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Friends, we are the direct beneficiaries of God's plan. You realize the gospel has come to us because of this, right? Because the Jews have rejected the gospel. Paul, God says, I'm now going to move, I'm now going to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And this is how the gospel has come to us. And Christians across the ages have gone forth to make disciples of the nations. Thanks to faithful disciples like Laura Clement and Dorcas Lau, who helped establish this church 60 years ago, the gospel has traveled to the ends of the earth and reached even Gentiles like us. So if, if, if we belong to Jesus, then the story of God's salvation plan is our story. You know, in, in verses 11 to 15, Paul is telling our story. If we are in Christ, we have been incorporated into this amazing plan that God has for both Jew and Gentile. You know, God has woven each strand of our individual conversion stories into this one great tapestry of His grace. This is our story, friends. Verses 11 to 15. And, and if we are in Christ, then we have personally experienced God's great and gracious reversal. So we have experienced that. So how has knowing Jesus turned our lives around? Why, why not give Him thanks and praise now? Even now, as you think about your own life, why not take a moment to praise God? for how he has turned your life around. You know, who are we that God should be mindful of Gentiles like us? It, it is indeed humbling that God would include nobodies like us in his plan. You know, our, our lives can often seem small and insignificant if we focus on ourselves. You know, and ironically, the, the more preoccupied we become with ourselves, the smaller our lives become. You know, our lives kind of shrink the more self-centered we become. You know, this is because God made us and saved us for so much more than just ourselves. You know, our, our, our true significance, our, our true value and worth is found not in ourselves, serving ourselves, but our true value and worth and significance is found in God and in being a part of His plan. You know, God has a big plan for the salvation of the nations. Verse 11 and 15. And, and He calls us into His plan. And He calls us to go as part of His plan and make disciples of the peoples of the world, either locally or globally. So friends, we need to kind of stop and ask ourselves, even as we see the amazing plan of God, whose plan are we living for? Whose plan are you living for? Are we living for our own plans? Or are we living for God's plan? You know, how, how can we be more mission-minded in, in how we live? You know, I, I don't just mean go off somewhere and do missions full-time. You know? 
but, but just mission-minded in how we think about our lives day to day, how we think about our work, how we think about our time at school, how we think about our relationships with our family, with our friends. How can we be more mission-minded? How can we be more mission-minded in how we use our retirement to use the time that God has afforded us at the end of our working lives? You know, I, I know friends who... Well, let me give you an example. Like, I, I heard from Kim Ming the story of some students who decided to forego doing their exchange programs in more prestigious universities, and instead they chose to do their exchange programs in Bangkok. You know, not, maybe not the most prestigious in terms of academic uh, uh, standards, but, but why did they choose to go to Bangkok, these students? Because they wanted to be a part of gospel ministry that was happening in Bangkok. So they chose not to do their attachments in you know, maybe more branded universities, but rather to just spend time in Bangkok doing that. So that's an example of being mission-minded in, in thinking about how, where we go to school even. I know friends who've been, who, who have been mission-minded in how they think about their work, their jobs. I know friends who've left comfortable jobs, comfortable lives where they are, and they've taken on jobs in places like Dubai. They've taken on jobs in places like Shanghai. You know, why did they uproot themselves and their families it's because they wanted to be useful for the gospel in those cities as well. Cities that are predominantly non-Christian. Cities that have great need for the gospel. In fact, friends, I know, I know friends who have moved to Singapore for work because they want to be useful for the gospel here as they serve churches in Singapore as well. And friends, this is what it means to, to think in a mission-minded way about our lives. And where is God calling us? Is He calling us to stay and be useful for the gospel here? Is He calling us to go, be useful for the gospel somewhere else? And whether we are here or abroad, this is God's plan. Now, how are we making our lives count for Jesus and His gospel? You know, the gospel has gone out to the Gentiles, but this isn't the end of the story. It's part two. When, when the Jews see the Gentiles becoming Christians, Paul says they will become jealous. When they see the Gentiles trusting in the Messiah, when, when they see the Gentiles experiencing the blessings of knowing Jesus, you know, they, they will begin to envy the Gentiles for that. You know, and this is a, a good kind of envy that moves them to also seek Jesus. You know, do, you, do you all know what FOMO stands for? What, what does FOMO stands for? stand for? FOMO, fear of missing out, right? So, so the Jews are experiencing a bit of FOMO, right? They, they kind of see the, the Gentiles becoming believers, and they kind of, hey, hey we, this is, these blessings are meant for us, right? These blessings are meant for God's covenant people. How come we don't have these blessings? So they begin to envy the Gentiles, and then they too want to come and know Jesus as well. So this is part two of, of God's plan. Friends, our, our lives, as, as we live as God's people, are, are meant to generate this kind of envy, actually. Right? The, the way we live our lives in community, it, it makes the gospel attractive in that sense. Right? It, it makes the gospel real. As people see our life together, as, as, as they see Christ-like love among us, as they see Christ-like joy and hope in our lives, I think, I think this draws people to Jesus. And this is what's happening with the Jews here in part two. So Israel's unbelief leads to the Gentiles receiving the gospel, and this makes the Jews jealous and draws them to Christ. But there's even more in, in God's plan. It's part three. Paul says God will bring in the fullness of full inclusion of the Jews. And, and this points to an even larger gospel harvest among the Jews. And, and when this happens, there will be even greater blessings for the whole world. You know, Paul says in verse 12, if their failure, you know, failure to believe the gospel, if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? You know, if, if we Gentiles have so benefited from Israel's rejection of the gospel, 
then how much more will we be blessed when Israel believes the gospel? You know, how, how will the world be blessed? You know, what, what amazing blessing are we anticipating in this part of God's plan? Look at verse 15. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Life from the dead. Paul is saying, when the full number of God's elect is gathered in, all of God's people, both Jew as well as Gentile, will be raised from the dead in glory. Life from the dead. You know, God's big salvation plan will culminate in the glorious resurrection of all His people. Friends, this is the amazing blessing that we look forward to. This glorious resurrection of God's people where we will shine like the brightness of the sky above and we will shine like stars forever and ever. I mean, that's from Daniel 12. Our God is a missionary who plans and works for the salvation of every nation, people, tribe, and language. As we read Romans 11, we realize that human sinfulness, not even Jewish unbelief, can prevent our sovereign God, our wise God, from accomplishing His purposes. He is the God who is able to save. He is the God who works a great and gracious reversal for not just the Jews, but indeed for the whole world. And He's able to work a great and gracious reversal for each one of us. For each one of us when we turn to Christ. Friends, I, I begin with the story of Anil David, whose life has been turned around. You know, friends, God promises us an even greater turnaround. Are we looking for a turnaround? Are we hoping for a reversal in our lives? Look to Jesus. Look to Christ. And through Him, God's big plan of salvation will climax in this amazing scene described in the book of Revelation, chapter 7. After this, I looked, and behold, a, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Friends, this is where we are all headed if we are in Christ. This is our story. Is, is Jesus our salvation? Is He our joy? Is He our hope? Let's pray together. Dear Father, as we come to you now, Father, we just pray that you would work powerfully in our hearts. Father, we pray that your word would be planted deep in our hearts. Father, we thank you that you are the God who is strong to save. You are the God who is able, by your grace, to bring about a great reversal. Father, even as we read about your plan in your word, we are humble that you should set your love on unworthy sinners like us. Father, there are many of us who come with struggles, many of us come with difficulties in our lives, many of us are hopeful for you to turn our lives around. Father, we pray that you would fill us with faith, fill us with hope in you. Oh, Father, we pray that in this moment of quiet, we, we pray that you would draw us to yourself. 
Help us to see your glory in the person of your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us to see him and how he is able to save us and give us life. Father, some of us have lived our lives for ourselves. We've made plans, we've made schemes, we've set goals, we have ambitions, and all these, in all these things we have neglected you, in all these things we have uh, left you out or made you nearly peripheral in our lives. Oh Father, we pray that you would forgive us. We pray that you would draw us back to you. Help us to see that what gives us true worth and meaning is not serving ourselves, but is in knowing you and being a part of your amazing plan. Father, we pray that you would expose our hearts before you now. We ask that you would convict us. For those of us who have lived for ourselves, we pray that you would draw us back to you. Help us to live for you. Help us to make our lives count for Jesus and the gospel. Wherever you place us, wherever you call us, Father, we pray that you would help us to bear, to be fruitful, to be faithful, and to trust you with our work. Father, we commit ourselves to you. We pray that your spirit would move powerfully in our hearts, plant the word deep in our hearts that we would respond to you with trust, with obedience, that we would experience the joy that comes only from Christ, that we would know the peace that comes from him alone. We ask this in his name. Amen. Let's remain seated as we sing this song of response together.
today with a heavy heart or you just need prayer there will be elders here at the front if you would like to pray with somebody it would be our privilege to do that I want to invite you to stand with us as we have our closing prayer and benediction uh, Father God we do bless you because though you know we are prone to wander yet you grant us a turning and so Father today I pray that many of us would feel inclined to turn afresh to you. Help us to feel your presence undergirding our hearts today. I pray that you would take us from this place full of holy courage. Take us from this place with your peace upon our heads, with the joy of the gospel bubbling up in our hearts. And now to him who is able to keep you from falling, to him who is able to present you without fault and with great joy. To the only begotten of the Father, be honor, power, glory, and majesty from this day forevermore. Amen. You can be seated after a few moments of contemplation. You're dismissed.